stand up was my my topic that was given to me. And sometimes when you get topics, like uh, you always ask, is there a, an idea or a verse or something like that, you know, that you're associated with? Because sometimes like uh, weekends like this, perhaps like the topic is practical Christianity. So they say, we want your lesson to come from James, right? Well, in this lesson, uh, Hiram and Neil, they didn't really give me any direction. And I know that there are, this is the first of three lessons that you'll have, uh, I guess the rest of today maybe, I think that Mike uh, Vestal has one stand out and then Robert Hatfield has one uh, stand together, I think. So uh, this sort of kicks off this series of lessons. And so I tried to figure out a way uh, that might sort of lead us toward that theme uh, in the time that we have together. So I thought about doing this. How, how about every one of us for just a second uh, stand up? Can we do that? Stand up real quick. This not, not too much. Okay, you can, you can sit back down. <laughs> the reason why I asked you to do that is because the reality is you don't know me. No, nobody in here really knows me except for my wife and my in-laws. That's about it. Uh, don't know much about me, and I don't know much about you. Uh, you may know my name just because that's what he told you my name was. You might know a little bit about where I preach because he told you I preached in Florence. And I guess you know a little bit about me. You know that I like golf, and you know that I like hunting, and you know things like that. You might know those little things about me just because he told you, but in reality, you don't know a lot about me, and I don't know a lot about you. I don't know any of your names, actually, hardly. I may have met a couple of you, but other than that, I don't know anything about you. And so I, my question is, what possessed you to stand when I asked you to do that? I mean, what, what right do I have to ask you to stand up? Because you don't know me and I don't know you, so what right do I have to ask you? And I would propose that the only reason you stood up is because you trusted that the reason I asked you to do it had some sort of good reason, right? I mean, you wouldn't have done it if I hadn't asked other than the fact that maybe there must be some reason that I asked you to stand. What if I told you today that there was someone who knows you way better than I do? Someone who knows every intimate detail of your life, the good and the bad, that literally designed you from head to toe, inside to out, knows every detail of your life, what if I told you that he asked you to stand? I would say that you're probably more inclined to listen to him because he knows you, and I hope that you know him. Now, let me put before you a couple of verses before we get to where I really want to camp out, I guess, today, and I want you to read these words with me, and I want you to think along with what they say. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 58. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 58. Now, I know you've probably read all of these verses before, but I just want you to listen for a word that might stick out to you based on what our topic is, to stand up, right? All right, so listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Does anyone's Bible say something different, more like stand firm? Do you see that in your translations? Some of them will say, be steadfast or stand firm, is Paul's advice to these Christians that were dealing with a lot of problems in their life. Then consider this, 1 Corinthians 16, and look at verse number 13. 1 Corinthians 16, just one chapter over, and verse 13, where Paul again says to them, be alert, stand firm, in the faith. So what God's encouraging these people to do through the pen of Paul is to stand firm. Now, 
words in our English language, they have like emotions attached to them. There are connotations that go along with words that help us to understand those words more fully. So if I say the word sit, so if someone is sitting while something's going on, the emotions that are attached to that are passive. They're not really doing anything. Like if all of us were to get up and to go out and to work in the, you know, I don't know where your fellowship here hall is here at Lehman Avenue, but if we were to go over to, this is it right here, huh? All right, so if there were tables set up and we had just had lunch and all of us go work together to clean up where we just ate lunch and one person decided to sit right there, all of us that were working were looking at that person who's sitting and we're thinking, well, they're, they're being pretty passive. They're not really doing anything. They're not taking any action. They're not participating in anything. But if we think about someone who's standing, perhaps they have engaged themselves in some way to the work. Or what about this? How many of you have ever been to like a ball game, baseball game, for instance? Yeah. What happens when somebody you love hits a home run? Right? Well, everybody stands up and screams as if to say, we support or encourage what just happened. Or maybe you've been to like a concert or something. Somebody that you like to listen to, and when they get done playing your favorite song, you stand up. You give them a standing ovation. Or someone that you uh, love listening to. Or, you know, it's just one of those things where you stand up. What am I doing when I stand up? Well, the emotion is I support you. I encourage what you did. I'm, I'm buying in to what you're presenting. And, and so then you have this idea then that what Paul's encouraging these Christians to do in those two verses that I read you, yea, even God, what he's encouraging those Christians to do is to number one, not be passive, be active, right? Stand up, be active. But the second thing he's asking them to do is to support something and to encourage something, to be a participator and a supporter of something specific and something important. Now, I'm not so sure, and this is where I struggled on which direction I was going to go. I'll just be honest with you, but I think I made the decision based on facts that are present and real in my own life that I'm convinced that all of us in this room don't have a problem with what we stand up for, Right? So if the topic today on your program, your schedule says stand up, we all know that we're standing up for who? Jesus. Jesus. We all know what we're standing up for. We're standing up for God and for Jesus and the Bible and the truth of the Bible. All of those things are true. What I'm more concerned with, at least in this present moment, is the how. How many of you know people that have stood up for something, but they didn't really do it in the right way? You know, they, they may be mean or just plain silly in their arguments. Or maybe they just, uh, when they stand up for something in the name of whatever it is they're standing up for, all of their consideration and compassion for other people, it just goes out of the window. And you see that a lot in our world, in a political sphere, in our cultural sphere, in our religious sphere of life. All of those things just seem to be absent because people just are mean and rude. And so what I would like to do, I guess, for the time that we have together remaining is to look at a chapter in the Scripture, really a couple of chapters in the Scripture, where a guy not only stands up for the what, right? He stands up for Jesus in the Scripture, just like we plan to do today. But he stands up in a certain way, and that's what I want to put before you this morning or this afternoon we have together. Look with me at Acts chapter 6. And notice this guy named Stephen. Because not only does Stephen stand up for Jesus, but he does it like Jesus. And that's what my goal is. I want to stand up for Jesus, but it does me no good in my life. If you don't listen to anything else I say, listen to this. 
it does me no good to stand up for Jesus if I don't stand up like Jesus. And that's what Stephen does. If I can't handle my convictions and the things that I believe in and the things that I want to support and encourage, if I handle them in a rude and contentious and mean, argumentative way, no one's ever going to want to follow Jesus because of the way I represent him. If I can't stand up for Jesus like Jesus, don't stand up. Okay? Let's look at Acts 6 together. I'm going to read it in a little bit of a different version. It makes it a little bit easier to read to me. Some of these words are a little bit different. And so I'm going to read it to you in a different version. This is the Christian Standard Version. If you listen to Hiram's lesson, he put up the NIV and the NLT. This is my NIV and NLT. I really like it. It's easy to read. It helps me a lot. Christian Standard. This is what it says. Acts 6, verse 1. In those days... As the disciples were increasing in number, there arose this complaint by the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. It was basically like what we would call maybe like the north and the south. You know, you have the Yankees up north and you have the rednecks down south or whatever. However you want to make the dividing line. That's kind of how it was with these Jews. You had two different groups of Jews. They all really believed the same thing. They were all Jews, but there was just a little bit of a distinction between the two. That's them. They're arguing because the widows in their group, they were being overlooked. They weren't getting the same attention that everybody else was in the group. And so they decide in verse number two that it's not right for the apostles to have to stop preaching so that they can go and serve the tables. And so they come together and they say, how about this idea? How about the apostles continue to preach and we just get a bunch of people together and we send them to wait on the tables and to give them food so that the apostles can keep preaching. And in that group of people, it says, verse three, they wanted people of good reputation that were full of the spirit and wisdom who could actually carry out this duty. But in verse number five, look at who they chose. They chose Stephen. Now, Stephen, we know as the first Christian martyr. That's the first guy to ever die because he loved Jesus. Seriously. That his life came to an end because he stood up for Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me is some of you might be thinking, well, why do I need to learn how to stand up? Because I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm not... I'm not the person who's in front, so really it's not important for me to stand up. They chose Stephen to be the one to wait on the tables while everyone else went out to preach. And what I read in Acts 6, 7, and 8 is arguably the greatest sermon in the book of Acts, aside from Acts chapter 2 and Peter's sermon. And guess what? Stephen wasn't even a preacher. He was a guy cleaning tables. All the other apostles that were supposedly the great teachers, they went out and preached and left Stephen behind. And here's the guy, the regular old Stephen, the waiter of the tables. He's the one that changes our lives even today. Let me encourage you. You may not ever be a preacher. Guys, you may not ever be a teacher. Ladies, you may not ever stand in a formal setting and preach and stand up, but you have the ability to change the lives of the people that you interact if you'll stand up for Jesus like Jesus. And I promise you that because you have this example of Stephen, right? We know verse 6. So they stand before the apostles, these guys, Stephen and the few others that they chose. The apostles prayed for them and laid their hands on them. And the word of God spread in Jerusalem. They increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The way the book of Acts works, we've heard it said this weekend, and that's really it. There's always good success. Good things happen and then right after that comes a problem. So here's the problem, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs before the people. He was doing incredible things for God, standing up. But look at verse 9. Opposition arose. Some of your Bibles will say, then opposition arose. Based on the good he was doing in verse 8, 
then bad things started to happen because of all these people of the Freedmen Synagogue, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, people from Cilicia and Asia. They began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up. You see that? They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So they said in verse 11, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses. In other words, they said, let's get together and, and, and organize this claim, basically, that Stephen is saying these bad things. But the Bible says that he didn't do that. Verse 11, it says they instigated it. They secretly persuaded people. They literally put all of their minds together and said, we don't like this guy. So let's lie about him to get him in trouble. That, that's the setting, okay? That's where we're at as far as biblical history is concerned. Stephen, a regular old dude, not a preacher, not the one who's teaching formally, but regular old people like me and you that just do the everyday Christian life. That's all it was, right? He was the guy that gets the chance to stand up. So as we consider this afternoon how we stand up. Remember, we all agree on the what, right? We're all standing up for Jesus. That's no question. But how do we do it? I would propose that if you're going to be successful in standing up for Jesus, like standing, or rather, by standing like Jesus, you got to do it with character. Character is one of those words that varies depending on who you ask, I guess, what it means. We say character is like how we act, I guess, is essentially what it boils down to. Who we are when no one's watching. I also know that people say that about integrity, but they kind of go in the same to me. They, they're really just about, when it boils down to the very core of who we are, what comes out? Who are we, right? That, that's our character. Now, I want you to notice what, and it's not just verse 8. There are a couple of other scriptures right here in Acts 6 that indicate this. If you look at verse 3, when the apostles were discussing the kind of people they're looking for, he says they wanted people of good reputation that were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And then you look at verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then you get to verse 8, and it says Stephen was full of grace and power. Man, that oh, what a description, right? So he says in verse 3 that he's full of wisdom, and then it says in verse number 5 that he's full of knowledge, essentially, and the Holy Spirit and faith, and then you get to verse 8, and it's like all of these descriptions about Stephen that, to me, describe his character, that describe who he is, and all of those things are evident as you start to read through chapter 6 when he actually starts to have a conversation with these people, that all of these elements help Stephen be successful in communicating Jesus to those people. Notice what these things mean. And by the way, this fool, it's like, I don't know, you know, if you get a glass and you say, I want you to fill that with Coke, you know, there might still be a little bit of that glass that's empty on the top. But when we say full, I mean, we're talking about full to the brim. Like you can't possibly fit another ounce of faith in Stephen's heart because he's full of it. And there's no room for anything else beside the Holy Spirit because he was full to the brim. That's what we're talking about here, and don't miss that, okay? Stephen was full of those things. You say, Ty, what does it mean that he was full of the Holy Spirit? I guess the best way I can describe it to you is that he was, like, completely convicted. He was sold out, 100% bought in. It wasn't that, like Stephen says, you know, today I'm going to be a Christian, but... 
tomorrow I'm not really sure. And in this moment, when these people are around me, I'll be a Christian. But when those people leave and I'm around the other mean people, then I won't be a Christian. None of that. Stephen, the Bible says, was full. Literally no room for anything else but the Holy Spirit. Now apply that to wisdom. He was full of wisdom. It says Stephen really wasn't... He wasn't just a man that had a lot of knowledge. He was a man that did something with his knowledge. It's kind of interesting to me that like wisdom in the Old Testament or the word wise in the Old Testament, the Hebrew definition sort of gives the idea of being able to work with your hands. So it's like Stephen, the Bible says, was skilled at working for the Lord. Like he, he knew what it was like to be good at living the Christian life. That's this kind of guy that we're talking about. Then what else does it say? He was full of faith. Hopefully that describes all of us. I would say hopefully we're full of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 talks about that, that we're filled with the Spirit in verse number 18, which causes us to speak in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We've heard that verse before. Hopefully we're full of wisdom, that we're not just about having a lot of knowledge. We want to we do good things, right? And then not only that, but we're full of faith, right? We have faith in God's Word and what He does for us. And then he says He's full of grace, there's one that I feel like maybe I lack. Maybe it's this one. The ability to be gracious toward people. Unmerited favor. Something they didn't deserve. Stephen says, I'm full of that. And then, then this. It says he was full of power. And this one's a little bit different. Stephen had some special blessings from the hands of the apostles that you and I, we don't have today. We don't have the physical laying on the hands of the apostles that they did to us to give us this power. But Stephen was able to harness what God was giving him and use it for the glory of God, just like you and I can be powerful people when we harness what God's given us to do and use it for his glory, right? So here's my challenge for you. This is my challenge for you. These are some questions I want you to think about. Have you made the decision to completely give yourself to God? That's what it means to be a person of character, really. Completely give yourself to God. No room for anything else to be full of the Spirit. That's what it says about Stephen. Number two, have you, have you sought wisdom? Like, what I mean by that is it's not enough to just know these things about Stephen and your Bible and everything you've learned this week, but have you said, where can I put that into practice in my life? How can I take what I learned about this guy, Stephen, and actually put it into practice? That's what we're talking about. Or faith. Have you said faith is what I really want? I want to have faith in God. And I want to have active faith. Or this one. Have you, have you given grace to other people? Can you think of somebody in your life that needs grace? And have you given it to them freely? Or will you be the person of character that we're trying to accomplish? When you stand up. Standing up for something is important, don't get me wrong. And standing up for Jesus is the greatest thing you can ever do. But if you stand up without any character, if you stand up without any character, it means nothing. Someone said competency can't compensate for a lack of character. It doesn't matter how great you are at whatever it is, but if you have no character, it means nothing to people. Stand up for Jesus, but stand up like him by having character. Right? Number two, notice this from right here in our text. Stand up and be courageous. Standing up for Jesus means standing up like Jesus, and that means having character. That's what we're talking about, but also it means having courage. If you read on right there in verse number 9, we kind of talked about that a little bit, those groups of people that stood up against Stephen, and we left off there in verse number 11, but notice what it says in verse 12. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is like 71 people, this group is, 
71 people that were there to judge, basically. So you imagine that. Stephen, all he does, really, I mean, he doesn't even say much. At least the Bible doesn't record it at this point. But obviously, he stood up for Jesus. They know he's a man filled with spirit, filled with faith, filled with wisdom, filled with grace, filled with power. What a description, right? They take this guy to these 71 people. By the way, what they tell the 71 people about Stephen is a lie. The Bible says in verse 11, they, they conspired falsely. They instigated. They were as if it's like they're writing on signs. And as Stephen is standing there, they're holding him up behind him saying, this is what he did. And it was all Everything about this whole situation was wrong because Stephen had done nothing wrong. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to something here. And this Christian Standard Version that I'm reading that I told you with some of the words are a little bit easier to read and understand. There's one problem, I guess, with the translation I studied with before reading with this one. I generally use the ESV a lot. That's what most people at Chisholm Hills have, and so that's what I preach from. And there's a word that's different in verse 9 in the ESV than it is in the Christian standard. And at the beginning of verse number 9, more than likely in your Bible, the first word is then. Do you see that in verse number 9? Then. Yeah, the Christian standard just kind of leaves that off. It just goes right into what happened. But that word is really important. Let me give you some real-life examples of what I mean by that word then being really important. If you decide to get baptized, maybe you've already done that. You've decided to get baptized. Mark my words. You decide to get baptized, then the devil is going to start filling your mind with doubts. That's what happens. You decide to stand for sexual purity, right? I'm, I'm going to save myself from marriage. You decide to do that, then you might lose that relationship. Someone might leave you nowadays because of that, right? Because you took a stand for that. Or you prioritize your weekend so you can come to church and you hang out with the youth group. Then your friend group might change, right? That's just what happens, and that's what happened in Stephen's life. He made a decision, and he stood up for something, and then it went bad. Then opposition came. Then he started having to deal with all of those things. Trust me when I say that when you stand up for Jesus, and add this caveat, when you stand up for Jesus like Jesus, you will face opposition. And I don't say that to scare you. None of these adults in here, they, they'd say the same thing. I don't say that to scare you, but know this. If you're not ready to face opposition for Jesus, then you're not ready to obey Jesus. It's just that real. It's hard. It's hard to be a Christian sometimes, but it's fantastic. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. It's a stand worth taking. But it's not without difficulty. It's not without perseverance, and it's not without endurance. And that's what Stephen had to learn. He made that decision, and then opposition came. And let me tell you something about that decision. Stephen knew it. He knew that by taking that stance, those people on the Sanhedrin, those 71 people, and even all the other groups of people that are mentioned there in verse 9, he knew they weren't going to like that. And you know that too. When you become a Christian, there's just going to be people that think differently than you. You know that. You know what that takes? It takes courage. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to say, this is the decision that I'm making and I'm going to stand by that decision, even though I know it's going to be incredibly difficult for me to do that. Let me point out a couple of other things about these people, too. 
that are important. The Freedmen's Synagogue, some of you say, or Synagogue of the Freedmen's. They were these groups of Jews that had been taken captive by Rome and they'd been set free. And basically they were just threatened by the preaching of, of Jesus really is all it was. And then you had the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. They were a group of people from Africa. A lot of them were Jews, but again, just threatened by the teaching and the influence of Jesus. Then you had Cilicia and Asia, what we know as like Turkey today basically is that region. And interestingly enough, Paul uh, may have been a member of the synagogue in Cilicia. That's what we read in Acts 29, 21 and verse 39. Paul says, I'm a Jew of Tarsus from Cilicia. That may have very well been his home group of people that he was dealing with. And so it may be no wonder that later on in Stephen's story, you read that before Paul became Paul when he was still Saul. He was one of the people that held the coats while they stoned Stephen. That he very well might have been a part of these Cilician people that were upset with Stephen's stance for Jesus. But let me tell you something. When I read Acts 6, 9 through 14, I read about a group of people that no matter how hard they try to mess Stephen up and to take Stephen away from what he loved and to take him away from his stance, they couldn't do it. You know why? Because they weren't arguing with Stephen. They thought they had Stephen on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, but you know who they really had on trial? It was God. They had God on trial, and they had no answer for God. The Bible says there in verse number 11, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Stephen was the one in front of them. That's because Stephen was literally there in the flesh, but they didn't have Stephen on trial. They had God on trial. God wasn't wrong. And those people found that out really quickly. And let me tell you something. It takes courage to stand up like that. And that's what I learned about Stephen in this text, that he stood up like Jesus. He stood up for Jesus, and he did so with courage. In order to make their case a little bit stronger, these people, verse 13, they, they begin to present false witnesses, much like they did with Jesus. You remember they even paid Jesus paid those soldiers in Matthew 28 to say things about Jesus that weren't true. Same kind of thing here in verse 13. They presented these false witnesses who said he never stopped speaking about the law. And basically what they're saying about Stephen is that he's talking bad about the law of Moses. And really what Stephen was doing was actually saying to them, well, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. And they didn't like that. So what Stephen was saying wasn't wrong at all, but they're making up these lies about him. And I, I say all that to you to say this. You keep reading in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 about these people that just kept lying about him and lying about him and saying all these bad things about him. And still, Stephen held to his conviction. And I would propose to you this afternoon that takes a great amount of courage. If you want to stand up for Jesus, You've got to do it like Jesus. That means have character. That means have courage. And then probably the most evident of all, one you might say, duh, if you're going to stand up for Jesus, you've got to be full of Christ. You've got to be full of Christ. Now, this is probably one of my favorite verses in this section of Scripture about Stephen. It says in verse 15 that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, that 71 people, remember, 71, it's almost kind of like what you would think in like, a, you know, the House of Representatives, something in Washington, D.C. You have all these really important people sitting around, and there's just one person standing there, Stephen, and all these people are just looking at him. They have power. I mean, they have earthly power. 
And it says in verse 15, they're standing there looking intently at him. Your translation might say gazing, which is kind of a little bit misleading because if I were to gaze at something today, we kind of talk about maybe just a quick look like a glance or something, but we're talking about just staring at him. I mean, staring a hole through Stephen. And it says this, they saw his face was like the face of an angel. That, that's cool to me. I mean, and I wonder what that might have looked like. But I'm also reminded of a couple of places in Scripture that I think are really important. Namely, Hebrews 11 and verse 38. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse number 38 that those people mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith, the world was not worthy of them. That's what the Bible says. And that's true about Stephen. You and I don't deserve Stephen. We don't deserve to have Stephen's example and the faith that Stephen had. The world just wasn't worthy of a guy like that. But I love that God included him in our Bibles. That you and I can have a conversation about him today. Be encouraged by Stephen because he's that great example that Stephen didn't just get mad when people opposed him. And this, this is what, what I mean when I say earlier. I'm not really concerned so much about the what because we all agree on what we're standing for. But it's the how. And notice what Stephen never did. Stephen never raised his voice to those people. He never said, you're lying, you know, like people might do today and get defensive about their position. He just kept standing. And I'm appreciative of that. Then you see this in verse 15, like we just mentioned. The Sanhedrin, 71 people, they look at him and they see that his face was shining. It's as if the literal glory of God was lighting Stephen's face up. Now let me give you two examples in the scripture where this has happened before, right? Exodus 34, in verse 29, it says, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face had shone because he had been talking with God. Moses has a conversation with God on Mount Sinai, and he comes down, and when he gets down in front of all the people of Israel, Moses' face is shining, literally, like a light. It's lit up, and everyone sees it because he had been having a conversation with God. Or in Matthew 17, in verse 2, when Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they have that conversation about God and His glory and the Father looking at His Son saying how pleased He was with Jesus' work and all of those things. And it says that Jesus, in verse 2, was transfigured before them. He was changed before them. But listen to this. His face shined like the sun. So here you have Moses. After having a conversation with God, his face shines with its glory. You have Jesus who has just interacted with God the Father on that Mount of Transfiguration and his face shines like the sun. And now you have Stephen who has taken a stand for God the Father. A courageous stand, if you will, and his face shines like the glory of God. And I also think it's ironic that Stephen is defending the law of Moses, and they accuse him for hating Moses, and now his face shines like Moses did. To me, it's like God saying, I agree with Stephen. I'm validating Stephen's message by making his face shine like the glory of God. Now, here's what I would like for you to take from this little verse, verse number 15. When you stand up for Jesus, when you stand up for Jesus, you ought to have this, this glow, really. If you, if you really love Jesus, it, it'll show on, on your face. It'll show in how you interact with people. We, we say it all the time. Like, 
people ought to be able to see the joy that you have in your heart by the way that you look and the way that you live. If you walk around angry all the time, people are like, what's wrong with this person? They can see that on your face. Just like when you're happy, they can see it on your face. Stephen was so happy to stand up for Jesus that he literally shined with the glory of God. That's a bit convicting. And I hope it is to you. That at some point or another, you'll examine your life and say, am I so happy with Jesus that people just see it on my face? That I glow of sorts because of how much I love Jesus. There's a couple of verses that I was reminded of. Psalm 34 and verse number 5, it says, those who look on him are radiant. In other words, those who look to Jesus, they glow. They're lit up like the sun. And their faces, the Bible says, will never be ashamed. Jesus said in Matthew 13 and verse number 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They'll look just like Jesus. They'll glow as great and as bright as Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 15 and he was talking about these citizens of the kingdom and he says, they'll shine as lights in the world. That's what happens when people are changed by Jesus. Now let me give you one other thing and then you'll have a few extra minutes to go get you a snack or a drink or whatever. I'll let you out early, I promise. But let me let me just direct your attention to the rest of this, this chapter. Well, really the rest of the story. If you flip the page in your Bible and you look at Acts chapter 7, Stephen gets a chance to defend himself, essentially. Like up until this point, he's just been thrown in front of the Sanhedrin with no chance to talk. These people are lying about him and they're saying these things about him that aren't true. But then you get to chapter 7 and it's like that's where God says, okay, now Stephen gets the chance to talk. And so Stephen starts to explain to them, here's what I'm saying. I'm not talking bad about Moses and I'm not talking bad about the law. I'm just telling you that Jesus, the Messiah, came to fulfill the law. That Jesus is only validating what Moses said and what Moses couldn't do for the people, Jesus could. He's not bad-mouthing them or anything. And so Stephen, for like 50 verses basically, explains to the Sanhedrin, look, I love Moses and I love the law, but I'm here to tell you that it makes it even better when you understand what Jesus did for both of those things. Now look at the reaction from the Sanhedrin council after he tells them that. That he really does support Moses, and he really does support the law, but he's trying to tell them that they'll get more out of both of those things if they just would understand what Jesus does for them. He says in verse 51 that they were stiff-necked people, that they were uncircumcising their hearts and ears. In other words, you're not ready to listen to this. You're not ready to hear what I'm telling you. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit, right? Listen to this in verse 54. When they heard those things, if somebody said that to you, you'd be pretty mad, I think. I would. When they heard those things, they were enraged. And they gnashed their teeth at him. And as you read on in the text, verse 58, after they've yelled to the top of their voices and they've covered their ears and they've rushed against him, they drag him out in the city and they begin to stone him. You know how the story goes. That was their response to Stephen standing up. But look at verse 55, and I'll leave you with this thought. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. That's that phrase again, right? Full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And look at this next phrase, perhaps the most pointed and convicting phrase in the whole book of Acts. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here's what I know. 
And I'll leave you with this thought. If you stand up for Jesus, like Jesus, He'll stand up for you.